0: Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 11, but then I would like to ask you to hold your place there and go to Matthew chapter 22. Romans 11, and then Matthew 22, where we'll start, I'm just going to read through a passage because it directly comes to bear with the passage we're looking at in Romans this morning. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is telling parables. In verse 1, it says that Jesus answered, spoke to them again by parables. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted Cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Ask them twice. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his own farm, and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready. But those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Looking at Israel in these last number of studies, 9, 10, and 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans, We're going to wrap up the section this morning. Uh, But looking at Israel. Israel was the one. uh, The Father sent His Son, and He invited Israel to the wedding. They rejected. They killed Messiah. Uh, and, And He appealed to them. As a result of their rejection, the Gentiles were added in. We're going to be looking at that this morning. As we've looked, as the last time that we uh, were in Romans, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that there is a remnant according to grace, a remnant being, out of the large group, a small portion. And so out of this remnant, we've seen that the Gentiles uh, and the Jews comprise that thing that's called the remnant. It's a small portion. He's revealing uh, here in, in these chapters that the Jews' disposition towards God uh, because they were the ones that were invited to the wedding and they were the ones who had refused to come. And so as we finish this section, he's wrapping up what he's been saying in these chapters with a series of questions in chapter 11. And then he asks the question and then he answers it. We looked at that last time. We looked at three questions. Briefly recap them here because... Uh, After all, you got to remember that Paul would know the questions that would be on people's minds. He had been doing this for 30 years, going into synagogues, telling them about the Christ, reasoning from the scriptures. He knew the questions. He knew the answers. And so it's important, as he writes to this church at Rome, that he throw the questions out that he knows they're going to ask. And then he goes through and he does this beautiful exposition on answering them. So in verse 1, uh, again to recap, he said, has God, has God cast away or disowned the Jews? And he answers the question himself. He says, he has not cast away his people. And then he goes on to say, I am an example. I, he, Paul goes into his pedigree there. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am Jewish myself. I am a Messianic Jew. Uh, short Answer there. If you want to look at his whole pedigree, you can go into Philippians chapter 3 and that see that this guy, <laughs> he was very thoroughly Jewish. And he was a ruler. He was highly educated. I mean, he had a long pedigree. And he says, Look, God hasn't disowned his people. I'm a primary example that he hasn't, even knowing his own background, his history had been against the church until God got a hold of him. So, he goes then from that point here in chapter 11 to recapping a bit of Israel's history because they had a long history of rebellion and disobedience and apostasy towards God. Uh, he goes in specifically talks about in the days of King Ahab, uh, the, the most wicked king in the northern portion of the country. This is after their sort of a bloodless civil war, uh, he talks about King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, who was a foreigner that he brought in, and she polluted the worship, had the priests killed, and he was just a horrible guy. And that was during the days when Elijah was ministering. And Elijah, being totally worn out, being after he had been used by God to, to kill these 400 prophets of Baal, watch the fire from God come down and wipe them out, uh, he ends up running from no, our lights just went out. He ends up running from from Queen Jezebel, going uh, uh, across the highlands in, in Israel. As he gets to that point, he's worn out. God comes to him in a cave. He says, "What are you doing here?" And and Elijah essentially says, "I'm the only one left." And and the second question that Paul poses here, he says, uh, "Paul asks, what does the divine response say to him?" And we know from First Kings chapter 19, his response is, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, knee to Baal. So he's saying, no, Elijah, really, you might feel alone in this. You might think that you're the only one left, but there is a remnant in Israel. Paul's point, there is still a remnant. And now the remnant would be those Jews who had come to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. So he goes on to apply God's word In to Israel's present condition in verse 5, he says, at this present time, there is a remnant according to grace. His point is God didn't then, nor does he now, or will he in the future completely reject Israel? Yes, Israel had rejected Messiah. Israel had a long history of rejecting the people. They killed the prophets. They rejected the people that God was sending to them. Those lights are really distracting. (laughs) All right, well, we're figuring it out. Anyway, so we finished last time with the third question. I feel like I'm at a talent show. (laughs) Bring the lights up, bring the lights down. The third question that Paul asks here in Romans 11, in verse 11, he says... I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, is his response. He answers again his own question. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, we're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. We're not talking about necessarily Gentile Christians. He's talking about Gentiles in general in this passage. Keep that in mind, because you can get tripped up if you're looking at as Gentile churchgoers or Gentile Christians. Because there's, we'll get into it as to why that's an important distinction to make. But what he is saying here is, has Israel irretrievably stumbled? Remember back when we looked at the stumbling stone in the Rock of Offense that he talks about earlier in these passages. He's saying, did they trip over Messiah, God's choice of Messiah, and his method of salvation? Those are the things that they stumbled over. He's saying, have they stumbled to the point where they can't get back up? His answer, again, is an emphatic, not a chance. And that's my paraphrase. But he says, God forbid, may it never be. No, certainly not. So through their rejection, God had bestowed salvation by grace through faith to the Gentiles. Now, remember, a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. This is a room full, unless you're a Messianic Jew. This is a room full of Gentiles. That was how that line was drawn. That's how it's drawn in God's word. What he's saying in this is that when he gave salvation to the Gentiles and he bestowed that on them, that God was provoking Israel to jealousy through it. That jealousy was, it it wasn't just because he said, ha ha, I want to make you jealous. So there. It's not what he was doing. There was a point to it, and what it was designed to do was to eventually bring them back to God, to draw them back into the fold. Whole different basis, whole different thing, no longer on the basis of law, but now on the basis of grace. Unmerited favor. I love you because I choose to love you, not because you're all that and more, or you're worth my love. So, verse 12 He says, now if if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? You hear us talk about God not being finished with the Jews. This is probably the greatest passage in all of God's word that bears that out. I want to give you an illustration. Just think about a train station. There's a train at the station. You're... On the platform, and you've been invited to board. And what had happened with Israel is God had said, look, here's this train. I've got, this is for you. And I want you to board the train. And they said, no, we don't want to. So he turns and he says, all right, anybody else that wants to come, board the train. And, and the Jews standing on the platform, they're watching this happen. And, and what he's hoping they'll do is go, wait a minute. I want to be on the train too. I want to be, I mean, that thing, that salvation that he's talking about, I want to enjoy the benefits of that as well. So that's his point. He's trying to get people to wake up. Look in the window, see how I'm treating the Gentiles because the train has not yet left the station. So interesting too, when he talks about the remnant, it'd be whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, when you board that train, you're a new creation, That's salvation. That's what happens when we give our lives to Christ, when we commit our hearts to him. The Bible tells us it's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. It's a new creation because that's your new identity. So he's offered these people a new identity in Christ because of the finished work of the cross. And they said, no. He said, all right, then I will make that same offer to the rest of the world and hopefully provoke you to jealousy. So the point in this too is that God's never through with Israel. He is never. He always has a remnant. He always has a plan. And and folks, there will be a future fullness experienced for Israel. I also want to mention that You know, it wasn't just their rejecting Messiah. Yeah, that's the big deal. That is a huge deal. But going again back in their history, as Paul is bringing out in these passages, over and over and over again, they had walked away from God. And they they had spurned his reproofs. They had killed the messengers, the prophets that he sent to them. They had a long history of saying no to what Jehovah wanted to do. And yet God... Constantly, continually showed great patience and forbearance with the Jews. Verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousies those who are my flesh and save some of them. So he's talking about his countrymen, the Jews. Uh, I magnify my ministry. When he says that, what he's saying is, I honor the ministry that God has given me. I I take responsibility for that which God laid hold of me for. And I, I read this and I think, you know, what about our ministry? Do you magnify the ministry? Do you have a ministry? Perhaps us being a housewife, perhaps us being A guy that's working hard to put food on the table. I'm not saying that it has to be a ministry in the church. Yeah, there are needs in the church, and, and we have some right now. We'd love to have more people in our kids' ministry. We'd love to have more people in our media ministry. And it's a matter of if God's putting that on your heart, please come and see me. But in the general sense, when Paul says, I magnify my ministry, he's saying, I take this seriously. This isn't just something I work in. This is my life. Jesus is my life. The ministry he's given me is the thing that more than any other earthly pursuit that I want to be responsible for. So, again, remember here in in these verses that Paul is addressing Gentiles in general. He speaks to them specifically here in verse 13 and refers to the Jews in the third person as they and them. So understand there's they and them and then there's us. (laughs) He wants the Gentiles to understand what God is doing through them with the Jewish people. So in verse 14, he's realistic when he states that not all would be saved. And we know that it's God's will that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But we know that not all will. And so once again, we see this concept of a remnant through that because only some will be saved. Verse 15. He says, for if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Asking another question. Uh, The gospel was preached to the world here only after Israel rejected it. Got to have that in mind. That command had gone out from heaven itself to preach the gospel to any and to all. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about when he was prophesying through that parable, saying, look, I've invited Israel to the wedding. They've said no. And and when he talks about he he kills them and he destroys their city, that, again, prophetically speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Roman legions under Titus decimated the city. He's serious about these things. And he's saying, look, those that after they have rejected coming to the wedding, I'm going to have you go out into the, the, the highways and the byways and invite anybody that'll come. Again, Jesus referring to this, referring to the Gentiles being added in. He says in verse 15, he says, for if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So as I mentioned, Israel rejected the gospel and the command had gone out Bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So we see that after the great sacrifice, Christ on the cross had been offered in God's own son. It would no longer be limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, with God in the old covenant, it was to Israel. And if you wanted to be a part of that, if you wanted to have anything to do with God as a Gentile, you had to become a proselyte. In other words, you had to convert to Judaism. You see, and that's not it anymore. The world was to hear the gospel. The Gentiles received the grace of God only through the unbelief and rejection of the Jewish nation is what Paul's bringing out here. But if casting away of the Jews was such a blessing to the world, what about their acceptance, he says? It'll be an immeasurably greater blessing for them to accept, to come into the fold now. And there is a day when Israel, as a nation, will come into the the fold of God. He says that'll be as life from the dead or darkness from lights. Oh, now we have one. So when is that going to happen? Essentially, it'll happen at the second coming of Christ. At the end of the great tribulation, we see what God's word tells us. Is that Israel will be revived, that they will embrace they will understand that they missed Messiah, and that they will embrace Messiah, and they will be added to the fold of God once more. So he says in verse sixteen, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Paul uses two metaphors here to illustrate his point. The first has to do with the first fruit and the lump, the second is with the root and the. Uh, and the branches. So, now when we look at the first fruit of the lump, he's not talking about fruit. He's talking about dough. Uh, in Numbers 15, we read that a piece of dough was set apart to the Lord, and that was called a heave offering. And we're not going to go into all of that, but the point is the piece of dough, if the piece of dough is set apart to the Lord, so all of the dough that is made from it is set apart to the Lord. In this case, the first fruit is Abraham. He's talking about the lineage of the nation of Israel. Abraham was set apart to God as the father of the nation, his people Israel being set apart by virtue of the fact that they're part of the same lump. Again, we're talking about Israel. I know this gets a little confusing, so bear with me, because we're sprinting, as I said, through this. But the point is, he's saying, God is not finished with Israel. I want you to look back at their history. I want you to see that current present day Israel and that applied then 2000 years ago. It applies today. God is not finished because they are part of the same lump that when that piece of dough was set aside, then any of the the dough that comes from that is what he's saying is considered part of the same thing. So. The second metaphor that he uses here is the root and the branches. And this is one that he elaborates on. And essentially he says that the root is set apart, then the branches are set apart as well. So Abraham, again, being the root in the sense that he was the first to be set apart by God to form a new people and a new nation. All the way back when, when God told Abraham, get out of your country and go to the land that I'll show you. And he ended up going to what is present day and what was at the time this was written, Israel. And he ended up being the father of that nation. So the point in that is Abraham set apart. So are those who are descended from him in the chosen line. Paul is saying, look, God has established this lineage. That lineage is in place and he's not finished with her. It's same thing today, guys. That's why we are so staunchly in support of Israel. God is not finished with her. And we we just need to be real careful to not get caught up in some of the cultural things that are going on that would cause people to doubt or to turn their backs on that nation. So he continues with the metaphor of the root and the branches in verse 17 as he says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree... Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He's saying he's building on this the previous verse, in which he compares Israel to a tree, uh, and in this analogy, the word when he talks about a root, it's, a, it's the Greek word riza, and what it, that is is the life sustaining part of the plant from the surface of the ground down. It's the part that you don't see. So he's saying here that if the root of the tree is holy, then the branches of the tree will be holy as well. Now he's going somewhere with this. So again, uh, as we unpack this, pay attention to what he's talking about regarding Israel and regarding the Gentiles. He's making the point that Israel will eventually return to their place as a set-apart people of God. By coming to faith in Christ. It's the only way that they can come. They can't come on the basis of law. They can't come on the basis of national identity. They can't come on the basis of cultural identity. They have to come on the basis of faith in Christ. That's the new covenant. And we'll talk about that more as we go. So he's saying some of the branches of Israel's tree have been broken off. In the context that he's writing in here, They've been deliberately pruned away because of their refusal to trust in Christ for salvation. He describes Gentile Christians as being the wild olive tree, being grafted in among the other branches in this metaphorical tree. The Gentiles now receive nourishment through those holy roots, just as believing Jewish people do. So he's saying, look, you have been grafted in. Gentiles, don't get haughty. Don't get arrogant. Don't get puffed up about this like, ha, we're the ones. No, he says, it, the root was God's dealings with Israel. And when Israel rejected Messiah, those branches were broken off. And you have been grafted in. You've got to remember, though, it's the same tree. It's the same, the, the, the root that, that nourished Israel is the same root that nourishes you. So there's a clear warning here about arrogance and spiritual pride creeping in. Anti-Semitism—that's a lot of this springs from, or that springs from this, creeping in with regard to the Jews. We've got to be careful. Again, it's understandable in Paul's day. Some of the religious leaders and some of those who were uh, going about—I mean, they were, the Jews were chasing Paul from town to town, as we've looked at. They were trying to track him down and kill him. They hatched more than one plot to do so. And so it would be understandable if there was some angst towards the Jews. But Paul wants his readers to have understanding uh, to the deeper things that are going on here. He says in verse 19, you'll say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And then he says in verse 20, well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. But fear, he says, so it's not about, it doesn't say because of disobedience, they were broken off. Yeah, that's true, because they were not obeying the obedience of faith. We've talked about in Romans here. But truly, what he's saying is that they were broken off because they chose not to believe. And, and, and what he's saying is you stand by faith. You chose to believe. So he says on that basis, it really has nothing to do with you. It has to do with God. It has to do with him honoring the fact that a person chooses to come to him on the basis of faith. He's saying essentially here there's nothing wrong with Abraham. Why? Because Abraham walked by faith. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we're told. So Paul's point, there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for uh, having a haughty attitude about the Jews, there's no room—certainly no room—for anti-Semitism. Through Israel, they had rejected faith in Christ as a way to be right with God. And Gentiles are in no way superior or favored over the Jews. Remember, he's addressing Gentiles in general here. He's not addressing necessarily Gentile Christians yet—maybe, may not be. But the point that he's making here is he's talking about the two groups. The groups, the Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish, and the Jews. Verse 21, he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you. Now, this isn't talking about you can lose your salvation. Again, he's not talking about that. Uh, what, he's writing, what he's saying here, he's, he's writing that if God was willing to break off the natural branches... Those Jewish people who were genetic descendants of Abraham, he certainly won't spare Gentiles who refuse to come and to believe in Christ themselves. Faith in Christ is their only hope of being connected to the tree. He says, so it's not about you. It's not about anything that you've done. It's about the fact that you chose to believe. And the Jews are in bad shape because they've chosen not to. But that won't always be the case because God still has a relationship with them even though they're rejecting. This point of Paul's discussion here, it's it's not about losing salvation. It's about gaining it. Uh, It's a commentary on there being a level field. Now, the field has been leveled between Jew and Gentile. The Jews, they really pushed against that. That was a big stumbling block for them. They wanted to look at the fact that they were the chosen people of God. They were the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the ones who were God's chosen and favored people. That is partly true, but it wasn't true when it came to salvation. They still have favored status with God. We don't understand all about that, but, but it's a totally level playing field. It's a totally level deal when it comes to salvation. It is always going to be on the basis of God's grace. It's always going to be on the basis of faith. By faith, by grace, through faith. He says in verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. He's showing us both sides on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Again, addressing the Gentiles, consider the goodness or the kindness, is how that's rendered in a lot of translations, uh, and the severity of God. We, we know that, and these are two pillars, essentially, of God's nature that he's revealing, that he's bringing out here. He's the same time, God is at the same moment kind and uncompromising. Kindness, severity, and it's based solely upon a person's faith in Christ. So we know that God is holy and and that he, therefore, he must be severe toward those who have fallen uh, by their choosing to not come to faith in Christ. He's saying that those Jews who refuse to believe would be cut off. Gentiles who refuse to believe will suffer the same end. Again, it's equal now. So using the train station metaphor, in the same way that those Jews refusing to board the train will be left when the train leaves the station, Paul is asserting here that those Gentiles who refuse to board will suffer the same fate. However, God in his grace leaves that train in the station Until the last possible moment. uh, Giving an opportunity to come to him. Until one's last breath. Or. And I want to add this in. Because we'll get to it here in this passage. In just a couple of minutes. Through what is called the fullness of the Gentiles. Either one. Verse 23. And they. He's talking about the Jews. Also if they do not continue in unbelief. Will be grafted in. They'll be added to the, to the tree. They'll be supported by the root. Uh, they'll be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So what he's saying here is that the Jews in their unbelief were broken off, but they don't have to remain that way. They don't have to stay in that state of being broken off. He's saying if they come, uh, if they go from unbelief to believing, that they'll be grafted in once more to their rightful place and one day they will. Folks, you know, I read this and I think this is absolutely, this is pure grace. He's saying, you know what? You've rejected. You you've, you you <laughs> you did away with the Messiah. You've killed the prophets. You have done all of these things throughout your history. You've been pushing back and rejecting me at every level. And yet my heart continues to be towards you. That's a lot like us. Some of us, I know, I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, is that, you know what, we're all broken. Some of us are more sophisticated and we hide it better. But we all have areas. We all have areas where we push back. We all have areas of rebellion. And when I read this, I think, God, you are so gracious. You are so long-suffering. You are so merciful that even in my rebellion, you choose to love me. He never endorses my rebellion. He, he, there's consequences to that. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's just an awesome thing to read these things about God's nature towards Israel because the way that he is towards Israel in most regards is the way that he is towards us. Very patient, very long-suffering. So he's saying that that the branches pruned from God's metaphorical tree can be grafted back into it. So if the Gentiles seem to graft into God's tree easily, we know it wouldn't be difficult at all for God to graft the natural branches back into the tree. That's what he's saying. If the, so if you came from an unnatural, you came from a wild olive tree, you've been grafted into the tree, Israel, the, or the tree that God has put there, the natural tree, how much easier if a Jew turns from their sin, embraces Messiah, and gets grafted back in? He says that's a natural fit. We can also assume that the natural branches will have the potential to bear a lot of fruit. In other words, God has rejected Israel only for now. That rejection will not be permanent. If you look at the nation of Israel today, it is a secular nation. It is a godless nation, by and large. There is a remnant, but there is very little concern for this. And yet, God still loves her. God still has a plan for her. God's plan will be unfolded. It will be revealed in time. When I look at the remnant that's there, I look in the book of Revelation where I see that 12,000 from each of the tribes, 144,000, and I'm not talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, we're talking about Jews. he says that there is a remnant that will be raised up in the end times. And that will be a remnant that will be a witness to the world, to the faithfulness of Christ. Verse 25, this is for I, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, he uses the word mystery there. We'll get to that. When you see that, that should perk your, your ears up because there's something that's being said. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What on earth is he talking about there? What Paul's doing is he's revealing that the future restoration of Israel is an assured fact. They will be restored. They have been restored as a nation. Spiritually, that is yet to happen. What he now reveals is a mystery. It, now, when we see the word mystery here, we looked at this when we studied the book of Ephesians because he talks about mystery there as well. This is When he talks about a mystery, folks, it's not a mystery that is unknowable. Oh, that's a mystery. I can't know it. That's not what's being said. When we see the word mystery in the New Testament, what it means is something that has not been known until now. So what he's saying is this is new revelation, not from me, but in God's word, that this is something new. It wasn't known until it was brought out when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. He says, it's a mystery. It's not unknowable, but not previously known. He says, essentially, it's a truth that could not be known through man's intellect alone. It's not something that he just came up with, but it's a truth that's now been made known through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Paul's concern is that the Gentile believers would, that he doesn't want them to be wise in their own treatment of the Jews. He doesn't want them to slip into arrogance. But so he, when he talks about this mystery, this is what the mystery is. What he's revealing is that blindness in part has happened to Israel. There is a blindness with them. If you look in Second Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, same guy that wrote this, says, there's a veil that lies over their hearts. And that veil is only removed in Christ. So blindness is, in part, has happened to Israel. And it's in place to this day. But he also is saying it hasn't affected all, but only those Jews who are unbelieving. There is a remnant of believing Jews. I love the organization Jews for Jesus. There's some other organizations out there that, that, to where, we see that there are those who have converted to Christ within Judaism. Yeah, <laughs> there's a new creation there. We'll get to that in a bit. But the point is, is that he's talking about uh, this blindness hasn't affected everybody. Also, I want to point out that the blindness that he talks about here is temporary. It'll continue only until the fullness of the Gentiles arrives. So what is he talking about when he says the fullness of the Gentiles? Literally, uh, that's the time. It's the time when the last person will be added to the church. When the completed body of Christ will be, we will be snatched away, will be raptured away to heaven. And folks, nothing has to take place in the biblical record. There is nothing prophetically that has to happen for that to take place. Everything is lined up. Could it be today? Absolutely. Could it be five years from now? Yeah, it could. But I don't believe, at least in my life, and, and when I look at this, uh, and, and it's like I was at a conference last summer, the guy said, you know, we've been teaching people about this for decades, and now it's here. He's talking about the birth pains. He's talking about the signs of the times. And that never has the, the tree been so ripe with the, the, seeing the prophetic records, seeing the things that Jesus talks about when they said, tell us. What will these things be? And what will be the promise of your coming? And then he goes on and he describes birth pangs. Folks, those things are coming into place more and more every day. And we're not talking about just in the United States. The United States isn't mentioned in the scripture. It's not mentioned in prophecy specifically. But we're talking about global things that are going on. Look up, he says, your redemption draws near. So the fullness of the Gentiles is that time when that last one receives Christ. And then he begins to wrap it up. I love those sections in the book of Revelation that talk about that. Verse 26. Don't have time for it this morning. Uh, He says, and so all Israel will be saved. (laughs) Okay, we're going to get to that. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is synonymous with Israel. So when he says all of Israel will be saved, I read that and I think, oh, really? That seems kind of odd. And I'll tell you what, this is a very hotly debated passage. People trying to figure out what is he talking about? Because we know that he's been saying that salvation is, is a free gift that it comes to people who come to faith. And so when he talks about all Israel, we know that all, not all Israel will believe. So what's he saying? I want to give you four options here. The first is national Israel. I don't think so. As I mentioned, national Israel, the nation of Israel is a godless nation. Unbelieving Israel. And, and I don't believe that that, when he's talking about all of Israel be saved, I don't think he's talking about the border, the country within the borders of Israel. So is he talking then about ethnic Israel? I'm a Jew. I don't think that that's the case either because we know that there's a remnant. He's talking about that here in this passage. And if there's going to be a remnant, that means that there are a lot of people who are outside of those promises and inheriting those promises. I don't think that that's it. Here's another one. Spiritual Israel. The Israel of God is the the whole body of people who have come to faith in Christ. And you could make a case for that, except Paul makes very clear distinctions here in Romans and in other places in God's word between Jew and Gentile. So I don't believe he's talking about that. Let me tell you, in the fourth one here is what I believe it is. And I believe that this is the real elect spared Israel. Of the future, I know that's nebulous. But where the Bible is silent, so also must we be, and, and that's a that's a rule of interpretation. I do believe that he's talking about Israel; that all Israel will be, will be saved, and the ones he's talking about are the elect. They're the ones who have been spared. They're the ones who have come to faith, and that is Israel. Yet in the future, we don't know what that looks like. For now, so that's going to be sufficient for me. <laughs> and. And those lights are going to drive me bonkers. (laughs) Verse 27. We're almost done. He says, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when he's talking about that, he says, all Israel will be saved. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's why I believe that this is redeemed Israel. uh, Connecting this verse with the last. We've got to realize that God always deals with people. He always deals with humans through covenants. Always. That is how he has chosen to do it. Now, he had prophesied a new covenant, one that would come through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are the two that come to mind. There are many other references. But there he says, the days are coming, Jeremiah 31, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with them that they broke, talking about the law. He says, but I'm going to put my law within their hearts. I'm going to write it on the tablets of their hearts and all of that. The point is, is when he says, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, I believe he's talking about the new covenant. Why? Because he says, I will take away their sins. The law of Moses could never do that. It could cover sins. But I'll tell you what, if you, went to, if you went to temple and you got up there and you had that animal slain and you know, the, the priest put his hands on it and prayed your sins into that animal and somebody ran you off the road with their camel on the way home <laughs> and you said things that you wish you hadn't or whatever, you had to go right back because that sin was covered. It was never eliminated. It was never dealt with once for all as they are at the cross. So when he's talking about? This, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them, or this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The only covenant out of all of the covenants that God has made with men is the covenant in Jesus' blood. And Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I want you to, 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 this wine, this bread, when he's talking about that in the upper room at the Last Supper, he is essentially saying, look, I want you to do this often in remembrance of me. Why? Because the old covenant, the effect of the law was terminated at the cross. From that point forward, it's the grace of God. It is totally the grace of God. and It is totally on the basis of faith. It's not about do. It's about believe. Verse 28, he says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What on earth is he talking about there? I mean, you could read these things and unless you put some context to it, you kind of get lost. The point in this that Paul's making is even though many of the Jews in Paul's days were enemies of God and they were against Jesus, he's saying they're still beloved. If for no other reason than for the sake of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, they're part of the lineage, they're part of that lump of dough. Concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of Abraham. So he's saying, yeah, uh, they're enemies for your sake. And they were enemies for his. When he wrote this, he would continue to be chased around the empire by the Jews. They would continue to try to take his life. And he's, he's writing this great defense for these same people that were trying to kill it. I think it's remarkable. He's talking about them being beloved, again, for the sake of Abraham, the first fruit and the lump, the roots. Verse 29, he says, for the gifts of the calling of God are irrevocable. And you know, stand alone, I love this verse, because when I see God equipping and dealing in people's hearts, he does equip, he does gift, and he doesn't revoke those gifts. He's not an Indian giver. When he raises people up, uh, and he equips and he calls, those are things that he places on a person's life, because it doesn't depend upon them. It's about his grace. Gifts are literally called graces. In the context here, he's saying that the Jews remain God's chosen people. He's saying that this is another reason that God hasn't give up, given up on Israel because those gifts and that calling, are, he's not taking them back. Direct application to us. It means that God will not give up on us. He always leaves the way open for repentance and restoration. Folks, I don't know, you know, I've been down some roads. <laughs> I trust that many of you have as well. Uh, I go back to my friend Leo, who many years ago, uh, he, he's a musician. He was my pastor for a few months when I first got to Northern California. Um, and, and, and during that time, he, he would get asked to go and to do these concerts all over he just a great um, he pounded so hard on the on the piano that he broke the brass plate in the back of it I mean he is just he 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 could get down with that thing and he so he was very popular and he would get invited to go and play for people and one time uh he went out and he did a concert, and somebody didn't like the way that he was playing they thought, oh that's just not reverent enough or something. And they wrote him a letter and they said, you know, how can you be a Christian? You play like that. You play this fast music and loud and all that other stuff. And and he got up in front of his church. He he still does. A large church in in San Diego. And, And he said, folks, don't write me letters. He said, and let me tell you why. He said, I love being asked to go play. I mean, that's what God has called me to do. He's called me to be a worship leader and a musician and a pastor. He said, but you know, if you knew all about me, you probably wouldn't want to come and listen to me play. But let me tell you something. If I knew all about you, I don't think I'd want to play for you. And there was silence in the church when he said that. Point made, it's about God's grace. It's about the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's not because I'm somehow worth it. I don't stand here this morning because I'm somehow special. This is just, I love going to church here. I tell people, you know, if if I wasn't the pastor, I'd still like going to church here. I think it's a cool church. However, that's what God's called me to do. What has he called you to do? Verse 30, he says, for as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have uh, now been disobedient so that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. So he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He's saying, look, you were once disobedient to God and God gave you mercy. And he did that through their disobedience. In other words, the gospel went to you because they rejected it. And so he's saying, look, keep that in mind because even so, these now have been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they can obtain mercy. So what he's saying is if God used the disobedience of Israel for the good of the Gentiles, he can also use the mercy shown to the Gentiles for the good of Israel. This is a two-way street. When Israel spurned the Messiah and the gospel of salvation, God turned to the Gentiles in mercy. He didn't turn to the Gentiles in seeing their worthiness. They were as unworthy as any other. He did it because he's merciful. Verse 32, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Now, this is a fascinating passage to me. So bear with me as as I lay it out. (laughs) Don't get the wrong idea here either. He says God has committed them all to disobedience. Um, The Jews and the Gentiles both had chosen unbelief. He's not saying that he's committed them, and that, that he makes them disobey. What he's saying is that because of their unbelief, God has bound everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, over to disobedience. That they could reap the fruits of it. Alright, that's hard to swallow, but that's what God does. He says, Look, I'm you have been bound over, I have given you over to disobedience. However, He does it that He could have mercy. You gotta understand, secondly, and you can't disconnect this from, from the rest, otherwise you end up with a harsh, uh, condescending, judgmental only view of god that all he does is punish i look at 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 wokeness out in our culture today all that does the cancel culture and all that all that does is punish there's no grace there's no mercy there's no understanding there's no acknowledgement of one's own sin as you're pointing out another's it's a cheap imitation of the gospel the point is, is that God's ultimate purpose all along is so that he may have mercy on them all. That's the bottom line. You gotta understand something about divine judgment. It's designed to be redemptive at heart. You gotta, if you don't get anything else out of the message this morning, I know we're racing through this, we're covering a lot of ground, but you gotta understand that divine judgment the intention of it is redemption. Think about it. Look at when God judged Israel with Assyria, the, the northern ten tribes. He brought the Assyrians in and they thrashed them. 722 BC. Pulled them, carted them off to captivity. Look what he did with Babylon, with the, 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 the southern kingdom. Three deportations. Carted them off to captivity. Why? Why? so they could learn to follow God, so that when he restored them, that they would seek after him. Look at what Hebrews chapter 12 says. He says, The Lord chastens those whom he loves. Divine judgment is designed to be redemptive. It is never just the end of it is God's mad at me, and so he's going to wipe me out, or he's going to smear me all over the sidewalk, or whatever it is. Yeah, people that don't turn, hell is real. But his design, his heart, is to use that to pull people back, to bring them back into line, into alignment with him and to his purposes and his will in their lives, ours too. So the purpose of the condemnation he's talking about here is essentially to wake them up. He's trying to get them to board the train, saying, stop standing around on the platform, that thing will leave. And you really want to be on it Look at the Gentiles. They're already boarded. Come on, Israel. Get it together. Understand that I'm doing this because I'm a redemptive God, because I am a long suffering, I'm a loving God. And the train will leave the station at some point. He wants to bring them to repentance so that a remnant of both Gentiles and Jews may be saved. So I love the way Paul ends this passage because, I mean, he goes through this and I just picture his brain is exploding at this point because this is, I'll tell you what, this is some deep stuff and, and I hope I haven't lost you. If I have, please go to our website. You can get the video or get the podcast or all that and just re-listen because we're covering so much ground. But the point that I want to make in all of this is that this is heavy stuff. He is going right into the mind of God as he explores these things. And they're not just concepts, they're realities about who God is and what his purposes are for, yeah, for for Israel, but what his purposes are for us. In considering the depth of these things, Paul is, he is quite literally overcome. And the only response that he has as he wraps up this whole section on Israel is worship. Verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul is overwhelmed. As he reflects upon the plan and the purpose of God for Israel, for you and I, the Gentiles. I'll tell you what, would we have or could we have done it the way that God has done it? I mean, looking at the way that he, he used Israel's rejection to bring the Gentiles in and yet still holds his hand out to Israel and still calls them his chosen people. He still calls, he still refers to them as the root. Amazing. Gracious. Merciful beyond belief. You see, great wisdom, compassion, goodness in the plan of God that Paul lays out here. Verse 34, he says, um, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or Who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him, uh, and it shall be repaid to him? I read this, and I think he's basically saying there's no way that anything that we could do would compare with what God has done. But I do think that there's a right response. Jeremiah chapter 9. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we see Jeremiah in verses 23 and 24. He says this. He says, thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and he knows me. That I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Folks, we serve a big God. We serve an all-powerful God. We serve, I mean, when you really look at who God is, that is he love? Yes, he is perfect love. Is he wrath? Yes, he is perfect anger. Is, is he merciful? Yes, he is. He is he's, he's not the definition of mercy. He is mercy. He's the embodiment of mercy. He's the embodiment of love. He's the embodiment of those attributes that only he has in perfection. He shares some of those with us. Us imperfect people. But Paul, he gets to the end of this and he's just saying, I'm just overwhelmed. I just I just can't do anything. I can't say anything to this other than to simply worship. And as we acknowledge that it's not about our wisdom. It's not about our strength. It's not about our wealth or the possessions. It's about Jesus. It's about the cross. It's about the love of God poured out on your life, on mine. Glory in this, what God says. It can never be about how crafty I am or... How I can manipulate things. I could never even think about putting God in my debt. You know, people do that all the time. You add anything to the finished work of Christ at the cross, what you're saying is the cross wasn't enough and God somehow owes you. God forbid. We need to have humility as we approach these things and to see that it's all God's work every bit of it, done on our behalf, simply beckoning us to come, saying, walk away from your sin, walk away from that which separates you from me. Come to me. I was talking to someone last night who was going through some stuff, and I said, you know, I think about Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, come to me. When you're weary, when you're just worn out, and you're burdened down with the cares of the world, come to me. He says, learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. My load is easy. My burden is light. That's the Jesus of the Bible. He's not finished with Israel. Folks, he's not finished with us. Praise God. It's all about God here. It's about worship. We're going to talk about that next week when we get into Romans chapter 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. He goes straight from this into that. Verse 36, he says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. In God's plan for my life, in Christ, it's all from him. In my desire for him to shine out from my life, through my life, it's to him. I want my life to be lived for the glory of God. Do I always pull it off? No. But that's the overarching desire of my heart. In my desire for him to shine through my life, it's to him. It's from him, through him, and to him. All glory, all honor, all praise belongs to him you know what he requires of me he says just show up that's it just show up and what I'm talking about is not showing up physically you can being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car however when he says show up I'm talking about show up in your heart believe Believe it, take the risk of believing that he is the God that he claims in this book to be. I guarantee you will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, oh, the riches of your word. I just always feel so inadequate as we race through passages like this. And yet, Lord, I trust by your Holy Spirit, you will take the word that's gone out this morning, that you will plant what you desire in each one's heart. So I pray, Father, bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at this morning. I pray, Father, that you would find hearts that are fully given to you. Lord, knowing that it's not about anything we bring, but a willing heart. Take our hearts, Lord, mold them, shape them into the image of Christ. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you, knowing all about us, choose to love us. And that in that, you glorify yourself. In Jesus' name.